Welcome back everybody. We are in the midst of chapter 13 and uh, perhaps we could look at chapters 12, 13 and 14 as a unit that describe to us the Bainani. And this is really where the Tanya takes off. What I mean it's where the Tanya takes off. Well, what is Tanya? We often ask this question. Why are we learning it? It's hard to describe what it is. It could be described as a philosophy. But we mentioned in chapter 12 of the uh, professor that gave a whole lecture on the dangers of smoking. And then during the break, he went out and he had a cigarette. So one of his students asked him, how does this work? He said, what's the problem? He said, you just gave us a whole lecture about the dangers of smoking. He said, yeah, that was a lecture about the dangers of smoking, but now I'm going for a cigarette. In other words, you could have a scenario where you could have a philosophy, or, but not necessarily does that affect practice. And so therefore to describe Tanya as Hasidic philosophy would actually fall short of a true understanding of Tanya. Tanya is certainly um, more than just a philosophy. It's really here to give us tools of how we actually live. It's not just a study, it's a practice. And these chapters, chapters 12 to 14, bridge that gap. It's a challenge. Because we want things to be practical. Yet, we're not just machines. We have depth. So, there's a balance. of On the one hand, digging deeper and having a deeper understanding of things and then seeing how that could be applied to the way that we act and this happens here in chapters 12 13 and 14. in chapter one we introduce the terms tzaddik rasha and benedi and we said that in colloquial terms and even in Maimonides, the tzaddik is somebody who does more mitzvahs than sins. The rasha is somebody who does more sins than mitzvahs. And the benedi is 50-50. Some of the time he sins, some of the time he does mitzvahs. But the Tanya proved in chapter 1 that that's not a true definition. It's a borrowed term as far as how a person is, uh, the consequences of his actions, of how a person is punished. If he's got more mitzvahs, then... Uh, he could, you know, it's, it's referring, for example, to the day of Rosh Hashanah, when uh, we're all davening to Hashem to please give us a good year, but we know that we're not uh, necessarily innocent, so why are we asking for him to give us such a good year? Because we say we've done so much good, so please let the good that we've done outweigh the evil. In that context, we say should, we should be viewed innocent like a tzaddik, and not as a Russia. But the Tanya says, that the moment a person sins, we see elsewhere in the Talmud, the person is already described as a Russia, as, as somebody that's bad. So the Tanya goes for a deeper definition of the terms Tzaddik, Russia, and Benedi. And the Tanya says that they don't just describe what the person does, but they describe what kind of a person it is, who the person is. What's going on in his heart and mind. And that's why we went on this whole journey over the last 11 chapters to understand who we are 
and how we operate. And by having a deeper understanding of what's going on on the inside before we come to practice, we can uh, now reapply the terms Tzaddik, Russia, and Benini. And the Tanya described the two souls, the godly soul and the animal soul. And we speak about two domains, what's going on in our mind and heart and then the way we act. And in that context, the Tanya describes the Tzaddik, the Russia, the Benini. The Tanya describes that under no, circumstances, under no circumstances does the Jew want to actually be separated from God. And maybe under the Tanya's definitions, a free translation would be the Tzaddik is the inspired, the person that is completely connected and only wanting to do the right thing. His mind and heart are also directed towards Hashem. The Rasha is the compromised, somebody that has allowed his guard down and allowed himself for even a moment in some small way to be disconnected from God. And the Benini is somebody who is in some way like the Tzaddik and some way like the Russia. He's like the Tzaddik in that he never lets his guard down. He never allows himself to be compromised. But he's like the Russia in that he's not necessarily inspired. He, 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 he he's not, doesn't necessarily feel that his mind and heart are pulling him only towards doing mitzvahs. Just to revisit a point again, just because a person sinned once, does that already make him into a Russia? Well, f- well, firstly, it changes at every moment. So just because a person was a Russia a moment ago, it doesn't mean that a moment later he doesn't have the opportunity to do teshuva, which means to regret what he's done, truthfully. And then at the next moment, he could be a tzaddik. So we ne- we not, we're never trapped in any of these definitions. But why is it the moment a person sins in some small way, they already considered a Russia? So that goes to value system. Like the example that we've given, if you went to, I don't know, robbing or uh, immoral activities, you know, if a person says that only once in a while I'll rob a bank, so then, sorry, I won't hire him, you know. But you mean, it's been a couple of weeks and most of the time I, I, I... hold back and I don't give in like I wish you well but I can't have I can't I can't trust you with running my company why because in the value system of the running of my company I decided that a guy who takes somebody else's money it just can't happen it's not acceptable so from the value system of the neshama which every Jew has Doing, going against the will of God is something that I can't allow to happen. It can't ever happen. And the moment the person that does allow it to happen, at that moment, that's bad. And therefore, he's deemed a Russia for that moment until he does Teshuvah. Now, there are a lot of mitzvahs and it's hard to keep everything. And I've mentioned all of this before, but I feel the need to, to re- re- go over it and to re-emphasize it. We're on a journey and everybody needs to do things one step at a time. And even to take the extreme example of, um, I don't know, a smoker. I don't know what the latest uh, uh, successful methods of going off of smoking are, but I know that there's definitely an approach where the person doesn't just cut turkey, cold turkey. He, uh, 
he just reduces and goes down by down until he stops completely. Certainly in the case of a drug addict, sometimes it's very dangerous if the drug addict is completely cut. Rather, they, there's, there's systems where they help them reduce. I'm no expert in these fields, but I'm saying that just because something is unthinkable and unacceptable, it doesn't mean that we can manage to stop it all at once. But we can have a plan of action where we see how gradually, slowly but surely, we, uh, we grow. And we grow out of moments of compromise. It's also certainly not a, a, when we speak about the term Russia, it's certainly not in the context of judgment. A while ago, a couple of weeks ago, I shared a story of this holy veteran chassid that described himself to be worse than the worst of Russia's. And his students asked him, how could you say that? And, now, and, and, and his response, and he was a little bit too uh, critical of himself, but he just still set the, he just set an example of how this is never used in the context of uh, holier than thou or you lower than me. Every person has tremendous value and so much we could learn from. So we're revisiting concepts that we've been discussing in Tanya in general. But the reason I just went back to these terms of tzaddik, rosh, and benedi is because the Tanya does now. The Tanya says, now, 12 chapters later, now that we've had understanding of there's what's going on in our person's heart and mind and what's going on on the outside, so we can have a better understanding of what the benedi is. Benedi isn't somebody that sometimes sins and sometimes doesn't because as we said, for the value system of the, the Shabba, to be separated from God, which happens during sin, is simply never acceptable. It's something that it never wants to do. Rather, the benedi is somebody that is torn between uh, doing the right thing and wanting to do the wrong thing. Now, the Tanya in chapter 1 mentioned that there was a famous rabbi. What was his name? His name was Rabbi. Rabbi. The chief used to tell a story of how... Uh, um, uh, just after the fall of apartheid and the new government. So one of the people that worked with him, he used to continuously call him Master, Master. Yes, Master. He said, please don't call me Master, if you remember the chief in his accents. I'm not a Master. I'm not your Master. I'm your Rabbi. Okay, Master. No, 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 no. Don't call me Master. I'm your... Okay, okay, Rabbi. Rabbi, what does Rabbi mean? Hmm, Master. <laughs> Obviously, things mean different things in different contexts. <laughs> there was the famous rabbi who was referred to as just rabbi because of his greatness. So great he was that even the angel of death had a difficult time taking his soul when his time had come because he never stopped for a moment from the study of Torah. And Torah is connected to life. And so the angel of death wasn't able to uh, um, get a hold of him. Although his time had come, so it was a whole system, a whole, a whole, trying to make him trip and fall, interesting stuff. But this is the point of the story is that he was very, very um, pious, very, very up there, very high level. And he was once talking with his colleagues and he said, you know, I'm a Bainani. So Abaye responded to him, Rabbi, you're a Bainani. You don't leave space for any of us to live. You, the great rabbi, you're calling yourself a bainani. Where does that leave all of us? And it's not false humility. Hasidus doesn't believe in a person saying something when they don't mean what they say. He wouldn't say that I'm a bainani if he didn't think he was a bainani. He wouldn't just pretend to be a bainani. 
So that's not an option either. So why did he call himself a Bedidi? That's one question we asked in the first chapter of the Tanya. Another question we asked was in the very first few lines, the Talmud says that even if the whole world says that you're a tzaddik, you should be in your eyes like a Russia. And the Tanya immediately asked, we learned the ethics of our fathers, that you shouldn't view yourself as a Russia. You shouldn't be an alti Russia, but don't be a Russia in your eyes. So, and we need to serve Hashem with joy. A, big, a fundamental principle of Chassidus, we touched on it at the end of last week, of how a um, person being down comes up from a place of the concealment of God. And when you bring the light of Hashem in, then that should uh, eliminate darkness and melancholy from our lives. So, how good would it be for a person's emotional well-being if they view themselves like a Russia? These are two questions we asked in chapter 1. Here, in, in these chapters, we answer these questions. Let's go through them one at a time. We'll start with the second question. Wording is, is, is important. And if we look at the wording, it doesn't say, even if the whole world says you're a tzaddik, you should view yourself to be a Russia. It says, like a Russia. Says the Tanya that we should never think that we're invincible. We should never think that even if the whole world is saying that you're a tzaddik, it doesn't mean that we can't fall. And therefore we should be ourselves like Russia in that we may still have, we have an animal within us and we may still be pulled to sin. So just because I'm not sitting right now, it doesn't mean I can't sin later. Uh, an, an obvious application of this concept are the laws of Yichud. Seclusion. In modern terms, it's become very popular, but it used to be frowned upon, which is that um, a, a man is not allowed to be in seclusion with a woman, even if it's a business meeting, and even if, 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 if it doesn't make a difference. Why? Because just because you decided that you uh, can't um, have, you won't have any problems of immorality, you never know, and therefore you need to set up that there's a window, that there's a people walking in and out, that the door's open. Even if it's an 80-year-old lady that you're going to visit as a rabbi, or even if it's a, if it's a domestic that's uh, been with you for the last... Whatever it is, it's, 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 we never trust... We should never convince ourselves that we can't sin. And that's how the Tanya explains. Even if the whole world says you're a tzaddik, still view yourself like a Russia. Don't think that you don't have the possibility to sin. Why? Because we have two souls. We have the godly soul and we have the animal soul. And the animal soul, which is the selfish soul, can pull us down. Does that make sense? So don't view yourself as a Russia, but like a Russia. Meaning, realize that even if the whole world says you're a tzaddik, in some ways you're still like a Russia. Another way that you could explain this, which I just heard this morning from a class of a colleague of mine, was if the world tells you you're a tzaddik, then you could still be like a Russia. Don't let the world define who you are. That's the wording of, of, of the sages. If, even if the whole world, if, if our measuring stick is by what people on the street think, then we're in trouble. If you think, if, if suddenly I feel like I've made it now and, and like I, I'm done. And a person can sometimes feel complacent, whether they become religious or whatever the scenario, they're like, I'm already like in the loop, I'm from or whatever it is. So as long as you're measuring yourself by what the guy walking down the street, how he views you, then you're in trouble. Even if he says you're tzaddik, you could still be like a Russia. So how does this come into the... T Why does this come into the Tanya now? Because the Tanya has now helped us understand the space of Abedini. And really it's called the Book of Abedini because it's helping us understand ourselves. 
how in one way we could be like a tzaddik, meaning we have the ability, and we'll discuss this more in a moment, of never letting our guards down and never actually sitting. But at the same time, we realize that in our inner mind and heart, we still may have an urge to do the wrong thing, and we may possibly succumb to that, and that way we're like the Russia. So why did Rabba say that he's a Bedini? You see, Rabba was such a great rabbi that he didn't even desire to do the wrong thing. So then he shouldn't have called himself a Bedini. He could have called himself a Tzaddik. He had no desire in his heart to ever do anything wrong. So Tanya says that even the Bedini, who has strong, who may have strong desires to sin, sometimes has his Tzaddik moments. Remember we spoke about it? When, when are those Tzaddik moments? Anybody remember? Where does the Bedini like a Tzaddik? Davening. When he davens. Rabbah thought that maybe he's just in a davening mode full time, but the moment he stops davening, then he'll fall. But really, it wasn't just due to his davening. He really was there even without the davening. But he thought he's kind of like a Bedini that's davening all day. So we've answered those two questions. But the real question is, what does it mean to be a Bainani? See, Bainani can mean that it's in between. In some way, we're like the Tzaddik. In some way, we're like the Rasha. But the book of the Bainani also means that it's for everybody. It's for the average guy. It's not for the saint and it's not for the sinner. It's for, it's for me and you. <coughs> so can we, the average guy, be the middle guy? Can, can we be a Bainani? And this is what chapter 14 comes to answer. Before we go to chapter 14, I'll just give a quick summary of chapter 12 and 13. We, gave our, we, we started off by speaking about what the Benini is, which I've just described again, how in some way he's like the Tzaddik in the way he acts, and in some way he's like the Russian, how he feels. Um, but then we said three important tools that help a person achieve not actually sinning or controlling his actions. And we said they were, number one, Pray. prayer. Number two, Light of the darkness. That was number three we discussed last week. Bringing Hashem into our lives. Mind over heart. Mind over heart was number two. So these, very good. I know that somebody's listening. <laughs> so we've got uh, three toolkits. If we remember at every moment that through the, we need the tool of davening to empower us to be able to resist temptation. And we need the tool of mind over heart, like uh, the Fit Chabad Rebbe told Freud. And we need to bring Hashem into our lives. Hashem is that light that dispels a lot of darkness. On our own, we wouldn't manage. And in that way, we're like the Russia. We'd fall. But we have Hashem at our side. When we just open the window and we allow His light to shine in, then that dispels so much darkness. Before we go to chapter 14, one final interesting discussion at the end of chapter 13 is a discussion about truth. Emes. Tanya asks, is the Bainani a truthful person? Does, does he reach the truth? So what does this mean? Truth is something that is certain and it's something that's constant. And so the Bainani can be arguably living in some form of a lie. Let me rephrase this in more common terms. In simple terms, it's the question, am I a hypocrite? Okay. 
I'm going to go and I'm going to go up to Shul and I'll get my Aliyah and I'll sing it with Chazanus and everybody. We were like, wow, this guy knows what's going on. And then, you know, I know what's going to happen. What's going to happen on Shabbos afternoon. And so maybe I should decline the Aliyah. Whatever example it is, well, I'll get up there and I'll be a speaker at a Torah event. Am I being a hypocrite? Is this true? Is this real? And Tanya says a very beautiful description of truth, which is somewhat counterintuitive. Yes, truth is consistent, but truth is found by each person on his level. And so for the Bainani, truth for the Bainani is not necessarily the truth for the Tzaddik. Now, that's quite a big statement because truth should not be subjective. It should be objective. It shouldn't be dependent on the person. That for one person it's truth and for another person it's not truth. But the Tanya says it, and I guess what the Tanya is saying is that, yeah, it does depend where you are to determine how you could access the truth. But then the Tanya says, another interesting point, and that is that the Bainani, so when he davens, so then it's all real. God is real, Torah is real, mitzvahs are real, that's what's real. And, and, and the stock market, oh, that's just uh, annoyance, that's not the real stuff, that's just what gets in the way. And then after he davens, the opposite happens. After what he davens, so God becomes abstract. Torah, he doesn't have the head space for. Mitzvahs, he's not holding there. But you want to talk about a proper conversation. Let's talk about the stock markets and where we're investing our money and the future of this country and all of the real stuff that matters. So uh, he goes through this real shift. While he's davening, he has one perspective of reality and then after davening has another perspective of reality and, and therefore it could be argued that he is somewhat of a hypocrite and he is not accessing the truth because if it was truth it would be constant but the Tanya says that as long as the Bendi has those davening moments in his life he has those moments where he could say to himself through davening or maybe even in other avenues but he could reach a point where he knows what's really real that God is real and that's what's not changing and everything in this world is finite and it is continuously changing so even when he goes back into the business world and he is in a different reality at any moment he could close his eyes and he could reawaken the reality that he had experienced earlier as we spoke about two weeks ago, when we spoke about the tool of prayer, we said the tool of prayer is not only while you daven, but even after you daven, when you recollect what you experienced during your davening, that gives you the power to uh, resist the temptation of, of the animal within. So says the Tanya, since at any given moment, the Bainani has the ability to reawaken that davening experience, so therefore it means that it is truth, it is constant, and he's not a hypocrite. It's just that he needs to, sometimes that becomes hidden, it becomes obscured, but it's still something that he always believes in. Either it's, it's, it's in his conscious mind or it's in his subconscious mind. And so therefore, it is constant. So are we hypocrites? And do we really believe in what we're doing? Chassidus will, 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 will argue, not at all. Why? Because we have a neshama. And the neshama at every moment wants to be connected to Hashem. We have times when the neshama is revealed. And we have times when the neshama is concealed. And that's part of the human condition. And maybe, 
Maybe you can say we're not hypocrites, but we are schizophrenia. So, uh, meaning, we always believe in what's right. We always have a neshama. We always want to do the right thing. But as we go about our day-to-day life, not always is that what's apparent. So it's, it's not a hypocrite. It's not, it's not just a game. It's not just pretend and who do you think you are. It is who I think I am. But life is busy and the challenge is to always reawaken that. So that was just an interesting discussion, which I wasn't sure if I'd cover in this very fast track, believe it or not, uh, program of the Tanya. We try to keep to not more than two classes per chapter, but um, uh, we've covered it. So that's about truth and uh, how we are truthful as if we strive to be a Bainadi. Can we be a Bainadi? Chapter 14 says that at every moment, every person has the ability to be a Bainadi. As we discussed, if a person was standing in court and he said that it wasn't my fault because I couldn't resist, that's not going to work because we, have, we need to be accountable. So in simple terms, that means that at every moment we have the ability to abstain from doing the wrong thing and to do the right thing. To be a tzaddik, the Tanya doesn't say at every moment we could be a tzaddik, because the, the tzaddik is somebody who even on the inside only wants to do the right thing. But to actually go ahead and do the right thing, it's something that we all have the ability to do at every moment. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, that anecdote from Rabnis and Ebenov, that uh, the 12-year-old asked him, can we really be a Benini? And he said, one minute at a time. Just for this next minute, you could control what, how you act, how, what you say, and what thoughts come through your mind, or not which thoughts come into your mind, but what you consciously think about. So do it for 60 seconds and do it for another 60 seconds and another 60 seconds. And that's how at every moment we have the ability to be a Bainani. was a Jew that once came to the market of Mezrich, a Hasidic master, and he said he was having an issue with controlling uh, his thoughts. He had inappropriate thoughts come into his mind, and he uh, didn't feel like he had the ability to control them. So the market told him, go to a particular Jew by the name of Reb Zebulf from a city called Zhitomer. I was in Zhitomer, it's in Ukraine actually. And, uh, and he'll teach you. So he uh, travels to Zhitomer, and it's already night and everybody's gone to sleep until he eventually manages to locate the house of Rav Wolf of Yitamer and he knocks on the door and he knocks and he knocks and he knocks and nobody answers. Knocks and knocks and knocks. Eventually the sun rises and he goes to Shul and he sees Rav Wolf in Shul and he greets him like anybody else and he says hi and everything's all good. And uh, okay, it's very strange what had happened the night before. It's like nowadays when you send somebody a WhatsApp and they don't respond. <laughs> but then you see them a few minutes later and everything's fine. So it must have been that, you know, they obviously missed the message and it's possible. Anyhow, the next night he goes back because he needs to meet with him during the day, I guess, wasn't the opportunity. And now not only is the door locked, but the gate is locked. And not only is the gate locked, but even that little crack underneath the gate is also closed with a plank of wood. 
And as hard as he knocks, there's absolutely no access. He can't get in. Now he's really confused. He comes to resemble the next day after davening. And he says that the maggot sent me to you for you to teach me how to uh, control my thoughts. Rav says, I mean, I don't know. What I can tell you was that you tried coming to my house and I'm in charge of my house and I decide who comes in and who doesn't. So you knocked and you knocked and you knocked, but I'm boss and I decided that you wouldn't come in. He was obviously actually on a high spiritual level and he had understood I don't know how the task, the best lesson that he was trying to teach. And the next night, I also closed the gate because I didn't want thieves to come in. And even the little crack at the bottom where insects could come in, I wanted that to be closed as well. But the point is, it's my house. And in my house, I control what comes in and what goes out. So this, is, this was the lesson to this particular chassid that we are in control. We are our boss. Yes, we have Hashem's help, but uh, we have the ability so, so we are powerful, and at any given moment, we have the choice to decide if an inappropriate action or word or even an, in, an inappropriate thought will be entertained in our minds. So it's something that we all have the ability to teach, as this Zev Wolf had demonstrated to his guest. So what could we tell ourselves at that moment when we want to do the wrong thing and we don't want to do the wrong thing but we do want to do it and we don't want to do it and it's hard we all have those moments when we know what the right thing is and we want to want to do it but we don't want to do it so what do we say the tanya says we need to remind ourselves that we don't want to be separated from god under any circumstances we want to remain completely connected to hashem and the tanya now reference to something that will be discussed later in chapter 18 at greater length that even the greatest of sinners we have an interesting phenomenon where you have people that were doing every sin in the book but when they were asked to convert to christianity to give up their religion they literally died on the stake because they said under no circumstances will i give up my judaism and it's a strange phenomenon but you're doing everything wrong in the book. You don't seem to care about the Torah. And then suddenly, you, uh, under no circumstances, want to give up on it. And we, all, we, we often see such people, people that are maybe even advocates for the Jewish people, where uh, their uh, advocacy of the Jewish people is with such passion that they stand up under all terms, yet in their private life, not necessarily are they uh, conducting in such a way. And as Tanya will elaborate in chapter 18, it's because every Jew does not want to be separated from God. And every Jew wants to remain connected from God. So what, what's the, so what happens? Either we forget about it altogether. We forget that, yes, there's a God and a connection and we want to have that connection. Or we convince ourselves that it's not going to affect our connection. So the next time we have a temptation to do the wrong thing and we're having a difficult time holding ourselves back, we should remind ourselves that we don't want to be separated from God, which is the source of life, and we want to remain connected to God. And when we remind ourselves that we have that connection, and we have God in our life, and we want to keep God in our life, we want to keep that connection, or parent in our life, and how when we said we do 
cause ourselves to become distant from Hashem. It makes us become less spiritually um, sensitive when we sin. That's what happens. Then that should please God empower us to be able to be a baby at every moment. Yet, if we go back to chapter 1 again, the oath was, be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. Before, sorry, let me give a little bit of context. Before a soul comes into this world, the soul is asked to take an oath that it will be a tzaddik and it won't be a rasha. So, the Tanya now says that it's a double oath. Why is it a double oath? We should strive to be a tzaddik, but at the very least, we shouldn't be a Russia, meaning to be a Benedi. So that's the double oath. We should strive for the highest. We should strive to be a tzaddik. So we just described how we could strive to be a Benedi, or how we could ensure that we're not a Russia. How do we strive to be a tzaddik? So we should work on also transforming our feelings. Until now, we'll be describing that although I crave the wrong thing, I know that it's wrong, and so I abstain that temptation. But at the same time, we should take different areas in our life and develop a love towards a mitzvah and a uh, um, complete um, disgust towards a sin. I know that's a strong word, but we, we should develop our feelings as well to try to strive to be a tzaddik in that we only want to do the right, the right thing and we, we're only uh, re- repelled by doing the wrong thing. So we shouldn't suffice with being a baby as far as saying, yes, I've always got to want to do the wrong thing, but still it's wrong and I don't want to be separated from God, so I won't do it. Rather, we should strive to be a tzaddik as well. We should strive for inner transformation where we only want to do the right thing and we only don't want to do the wrong thing. And the Tadja says, firstly, uh, um, uh, there's a concept, fake it till you make it. If you keep doing it, if you keep practicing yourself, if you keep saying to yourself that I really love this and, I, and, and how I really don't like the sin, then it could actually develop for it to become real. Right? It's like they say, they say about the media, the news. Say a lie enough times that everybody will believe it. Everything has its source in Torah. I mean, obviously, if you say the lie enough times, then it's still a lie. But uh, I guess the source of that, in a positive sense, is if we convince ourselves enough times that we want to do a mitzvah, that we don't want to do a sin, then eventually we'll start feeling that way, uh, feeling that way too. And ultimately, maybe Hashem will be so kind as to gift us with being actually being inside, not just faking it. It's a gift from Hashem, not necessarily do will we ever have the ability to reach that point where all of our feelings are transformed as well. But we, the soul is told to take an oath to strive to be a tzaddik as well, to strive to get there. And maybe Hashem will gift us with actually achieving it. But at the very least, we should try not to be a rasha. I'm going to conclude with a story, um, which I love which I think is apparent or appropriate now for this chapter 14 of the Tanya. It was Purim. And I had just moved from Israel to America. A few weeks before Purim, my friends, my Israeli friends, I had two groups of friends now. I was learning in in an American program, but for the last few years I'd been in an Israeli program. And all of my Israeli friends had come to America to study for a year. So they were in the Israeli stream and I was in the American stream. And my Israeli friends were looking for a place for our class, which we'd been with for the last few years, about 30 guys, to have a Purim party. They wanted to have a Purim party and they wanted a nice space for it. And so somehow I didn't uh, 
feel embarrassed to, to, to ask my aunt who happens to stayed by who recently passed away, um, Auntie Leia, if she, she's happy to host my class for a party. And she said yes, which I kind of knew she would. I mean, it's a Purim party, and it's not anybody that she knows. It's my Israeli friends. But um, I wanted to help them out, and she was happy to host it. And so uh, I told them, yeah, we're having the Purim party at my aunt. And the only thing I didn't tell my aunt was that I was going to Boston to run a program over there. <laughs> so so for, uh, Purim morning, I flew. It was the shortest flight I think I've ever taken. I flew to Boston. And then I met a group of university students that were traveling from Boston to a place called Stony Brook. And we had a party, a Purim party bus. And on the bus, I read the Megillah and we did all the mitzvahs. So that was the program for Purim Day. And then Purim afternoon, we would arrive in Stony Brook, which is about an hour drive from Brooklyn. And then I would drive back. And then I would get there. At some point, the party would have begun. But I was hoping to still be there for most of it. Anyhow, the guy that was giving me a lift home from... Uh, Stony Brook to Brooklyn, really lost his way. And the next thing we were from one bridge to the next, we had a bridge into Manhattan and then another bridge, I don't know, maybe into Long Island. And the tolls were going all the way up and, and, and the hours were accumulating and I wasn't by the party. And my friends were, it was Purim, apparently some of them had, had said a lot of L'chaim and I was feeling absolutely terrible. And just to make things only worse, you know, I called up, I don't know, my cousin or my aunt, and I heard that there was action in the house. So here there was the party that she agreed to host, my party, and I wasn't there. And I wanted the guy to just get there quickly, but he wasn't getting there quickly. We were going everywhere else. It was really terrible. It was, it was shocking. It was unacceptable. But that's what happened. And... Uh, the guy that was driving me realized that I was really stressing out. And he said, you know what, look, there's nothing we could do about it. Let me tell you a story. He said, to make a long story short, I uh, was failing the educational system. I was in one university and I failed at another university and I failed. I was, already, I was a real party guy. Maybe that's what reminded him of all of this. And I never missed a party, but my studies just wasn't working. Until my parents gave me one last chance, they said, we're going to put you at this particular university and please give it your best and whatever they said, you could do it. And this was now, I was boarding, it was full time. And once a week, my father used to pick me up and we used to have time together. And when it was that? It was on a Wednesday night. And then my father heard about a Tanya class on a Wednesday night. I don't know what came first, maybe... Either way, there was a conflict because the father wanted to take his son out and he also wanted to go to the Tanya class. I mean, if you asked me, I would have told the father, you know, give the Tanya class a break. You need time with your son. But obviously, I don't know all of the uh, um, equations and he didn't want to miss it for anything. So he asked his son to join him. Okay, maybe that was all the plan. But uh, either way, this gentleman that's giving me the ride describes a story about himself. I go with my father to the Tanya class. My father loves it. And for me makes no sense to me. Everything went completely over my head. It just really wasn't for me. And week after week, my father used to take me and maybe we went out before or after and we schmoozed a little bit. My father loved it and I hated it. But he still kept going every week. Okay, so he had his father dragging you. So hopefully you're not having the exact same experience. But he said, till one day he uh, was with his friends at a restaurant and uh, we were ordering whatever we'd usually order. 
And usually I would have no issue ordering ham or, I don't know, some non-kosher beef. And this time I said to myself, you know, I don't believe in any of this stuff. But the rabbi that was giving the class, you know, he believes in it. So whatever, maybe, okay, instead of ordering ham, I'll get something else. Um, because he believes in it, but I don't believe in it. And that's what happened. He ordered something else from what he usually would, which was a little, which wasn't. He avoided something unkosher that he would have eaten. And then he came back to the next Wednesday night. His father picked, it up, picked him up from university. And he came to the class. And suddenly, everything began to make sense. It was like the most unbelievable class. Just everything clicked. Everything fit. It was unbelievable how, you know, they say about the teenager, that the moment he turns uh, 20, suddenly his father became uh, intelligent after five years of stupidity. <laughs> suddenly, the class became the most incredible class. And what he realized this gentleman told me, was that what had changed, he had changed. The moment he made a decision to actually change something in his life, then suddenly he became more receptive to the teachings. So I think now that we've already reached chapters 12, 13 and 14, where we no longer, it's no longer just about a philosophy of understanding the different souls, but it's about really seeing how we can implement it in our lives. It's a, a good time or space to think about areas in our life where we can change, where we can grow, we could eliminate some form of a sin or take on some form of a mitzvah and perhaps in the merit of doing that we'll become more receptive to be able to continue on our journey through the Tanya. Beautiful.